0: Hello and welcome to the Business of Agriculture podcast with me, your host Damian Mason, where we discuss issues impacting the industry of food, fuel, fiber, and farming. The business of agriculture that we all work in, that we love. Every week we bring you something a little different. We're not going to talk about the corn prices in March. We're not going to talk about the weather. You got that on your phone. We know ag people love the weather and they love commodity prices, but we try to bring you a little something different. This edition, we're talking about agricultural law. That's right. The business of agriculture is fairly unique. We have issues that are unique to our industry. We have a very small populace that's involved, 1% farming, 7% involved in the business of agriculture. We have huge amounts of capital at risk. We've got the weather. We've got certain legislation. So of course, we have special legalities, special issues that impact our industry. So I went to a lady it's also a former client of mine. Her name is Amy Cornell of Bose McKinney and & Evans and Bose Public Affairs in Indianapolis, Indiana. She also is the president of Agribusiness Council of Indiana. She is an ag lawyer, and she's going to talk to us all about issues as they come from the business of agriculture and the law part of it. Amy Cornell, welcome to the business of agriculture.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on today.
0: Well, thank you for being a guest and more importantly, thank you for being a paying client. Dear listeners, if you're listening to this and you somehow didn't realize it, I really make my living standing in front of audiences, agricultural audiences and talking. So if you have a meeting coming up, please do check out all my videos either on YouTube, the Damian Mason channel or DamianMason.com. Amy Cornell was a client of mine. She struck me as an extremely smart, driven woman who is not only the president of the Agribusiness Council of Indiana, as I said, she's an ag lawyer, she does ag lobbying, she also does some, uh, some legal work. All right, let's talk about the business of agriculture and ag law. Your background, you're a farm girl from Danville, Illinois, you went to Purdue University, you went to the IU, that's Indiana University School of Law, and then you went to Arkansas to specialize in agricultural law, is that roughly the deal?
1: Yes, that's true. Although I was a little bit of a unique farm girl in the fact that I was allergic to everything on my parents' farm. Trees, grass, grain dust, mold. Um, So it took a while for me to uh, get interested in agriculture and all the unique benefits because it just didn't make me feel good when I was a child.
0: Well, you can be involved in agriculture and not even be in the dust, as it turns out, because you are. So farm good, Purdue, what was your undergraduate de- degree?
1: I was a business major um, and I really thought that I was going to go work in Chicago, Illinois, live in a big high rise, and uh, wear a lot of fancy Ann Taylor clothes. Um, but my senior year at Purdue, I took an interviewing class and the instructor encouraged us to interview family members about things that we didn't know much about. Um, most people were, you know, interviewing. Uh, grandparents that had served in the war, lived through that time, I went home and decided to interview my dad about our farm. And that one assignment changed my whole career path. That's when I decided that agriculture was cool. And even though I wasn't going to actually be engaged in day-to-day farming, I wanted to help farmers. And so that's when I decided to go to law school to be an agricultural attorney.
0: So your senior year at Purdue, you're sitting there as a business major. And by the way, whether you have the job in Chicago and live in a high rise is immaterial because I think you're still a very good dresser. In fact, I have you on video and you're on my website giving me a testimonial. So I'm sure you can still wear the Ann Taylor outfits, whether or not you live in Chicago. Uh, (laughs) You're sitting there at your senior year and this all changes. So then you say, crap, now I got to take the LSAT and apply for law school. What happened then?
1: Well, so I had a, a gap year because I decided to go really late. Uh, so I stayed in West Lafayette, um, got ready for law school, took the LSAT. I actually worked at the Clinique Counter Selling Makeup. That was perfect, perfect sales training for me. And, uh, and then I moved to Indianapolis. I started at the um, Indiana University McKinney School of Law, a great law school and great opportunity to work in the city that I plan to live in.
0: Then specializing in ag because there's you know we we crank out lots of lawyers there's there's two law schools in my home state here of in Indiana there are plenty of law schools but you became an ag lawyer did you do that while you were in Indiana or that's what the deal with going to Arkansas?
1: No, so I well I started while I was in Indiana I became involved with the only national. Association for Agricultural Attorneys. It's the American Agricultural Lawyers Association, AALA. I started going to their annual conference as a law student, and that's where I learned about the University of Arkansas LLM program in agricultural law. Um, At the time that I went there, it was the only LLM program in the country, and so we just spent an entire year really focused on the unique applications and exceptions that apply to the agriculture industry so for example ag has a separate bankruptcy code special uh, creditors laws different environmental law implications, uh, labor law. So it was a really great experience, and um, I also took advantage of several internship and externship opportunities. I interned at Indiana Farm Bureau. I did an externship at the Indiana Department of Environmental Management and the Indiana Supreme Court.
0: Yeah, and you said LLM. I thought it was what you just said about uh, Arkansas. What's that stand for?
1: So it actually stands for for Master of Laws. Okay. Uh, a JD degree is unique because you get your Juris Doctorate first, and then if you decide to go on, you get a Master's second.
0: Okay, and Arkansas, University of Arkansas offers this, and that's why you went there, right? Yes. Okay. You said the American Agricultural Lawyers Association, which is something that I never knew existed. I'm sure none of our listeners or very few of them knew existed. If you're out here listening to the business of agriculture podcast and let's say you own a seed genetics company or you're a big farmer or a small farmer or whatever you might be, you have uh, you know, six equipment dealerships and you're listening to this podcast and you say, you know what? I have an attorney, but they don't know that much about this industry. Is the agricultural, American Agricultural Lawyers Association a good place to start to find someone that is well versed in the uniqueness of our industry?
1: Absolutely. Because it's the only association in the country that's dedicated to Ag Lawyers, there are people in private practice, um, NGOs, academia, and government. Uh, They they do multiple events throughout the year, several webinars, and then the annual conference that is held each year, it is the premier place to get Ag Law education and a lot of different uh, topics that are trending nationally.
0: All right. Before we talk about those topics that are trending, you are going to—you are now involved with starting an ag program here in uh, my home state of Indiana, right? Yes. Tell me about that.
1: Okay. So um, this is the brainchild of former senator. Brant Hirschman. He served on the Purdue Dean's Advisory Council. And while he was there, he started to see a need for agricultural attorneys and thought that there had to be a way to bring about some kind of joint program. It was a multi-year effort. Um, The uh, Commission for Higher Ed commissioned a study. And then finally in 2017, the Indiana General Assembly appropriated some seed funds to start a pilot program. I happen to be friends with both the lobbyists from, uh, from both institutions, and because of my degree Uh, background and degree in agricultural law, I was one of the people that they came to talk to, to say, how should we set this up? What do you think? And when I realized this is something that could happen, I just, on my own initiative, uh, started making a business plan and putting together how I would put it together. The people that I would uh, pull in the room, the different categories. Um, And because my career has been a little bit unique, I was started in private practice. I went to government. I went to a nonprofit and then came back to private practice. I just had a unique perspective on agricultural law in Indiana and all of the different things you could do with that degree. So once everything was finalized, I basically just went and knocked on the door of the dean at the law school and said, this is something I'd really like to do and here's my plan.
0: So when will this program be up and running?
1: The goal is to launch the program in fall of 2019. Um, and so, in order to do that, we had put together a steering committee that is made up of uh, people that are serving as in house general counsel, ag economists. Uh, representatives from commodity organizations, uh, the Nature Conservancy, uh, representatives from both uh, institutions, and so we have been meeting, we've had several meetings now, We've, we've decided on a general framework of what we think the program should look like, and so now we're in the process of putting together the actual curriculum and getting it approved by both institutions.
0: Okay, so it's going to be going a year and a half so just think about that dear listener if you're sitting there saying hey you know what my son my daughter actually uh has discussed maybe further uh furthering their education maybe they become an ag lawyer through the iupu joint initiative where will the classes be in indianapolis
1: Primarily in Indianapolis, simply because of the ABA attendance requirements for in-class learning. Mm -hmm. Um, And also because Purdue has so many exceptional online classes that are already available through its uh, graduate ag-econ department.
0: Got it. Okay, there's an old, old saying, whether it's a true statistic or not, we've all heard it. The United States has eighty percent of the world's attorneys. I mean, it's 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 maybe you hadn't heard of it, but but I've heard it. Also, just like you know, there's the lawyer jokes. Of course, you know what do you call ten thousand lawyers at the bottom of the ocean? A good start. So uh, while everybody picks on attorneys, everybody also needs an attorney. If you are in business, I've hired a dozen different attorneys over my career for everything from, you know, putting together a will to uh, buying a a property, whatever that thing is. We've got plenty of attorneys. How are we on agricultural attorneys?
1: We need more agricultural attorneys. You started off the top of the program uh, pointing out that Less than 1% of the population is involved in the direct production of agriculture, 7% of the population in the surrounding fields. That means it's a really small minority of people that actually understand what it means to grow food in the the ins and outs of that day-to-day business. We need more farm kids uh, to get engaged in agricultural law and policy.
0: Yeah, I think that what you know we get it we're here talking about it you're the farm kid I'm the farm kid I'm a farm owner uh we we get it but when you were if you were to explain to someone like first off there's the amount of capital that most people don't get you know I tell my suburban friends when my winter home in Arizona I said do you realize these people that you think are just uh, you know country rubes you realize that they have about million dollars worth of machinery. They got another 1.5 million dollars of facility and land. You know, you just start running this all together, and like this is a big business farming. And then of course the genetics and the equipment. I mean, think of everything that we might be listening to the show that you're involved in, and the environmental aspect of it, and the so it's not just the dollar amounts; it's the. You talk about disputes, Farm Bureau, and, of course, property disputes. So what are we having these ag people do, these ag lawyers? What are they working on?
1: Well, it depends on their um, practice. So everything as simple as an employment agreement, right? We're getting past the stage where people can just do business on a handshake. Everything is done under contracts, whether you're, you're having sales services, employment agreements, um, looking at uh, any type of environmental issue that might come up, whether it would be with the feds, the EPA, or in our case, the Indiana uh, Department of Environmental Management. Something as simple as getting a building permit for a livestock operation, especially in Indiana, things like that, depending on the county that you're in, can become a lot more contentious. And whereas before, uh, farmers might think that a lawyer was maybe an overkill or a nice to have, it's now almost essential to have legal counsel involved in the early stages of all of those business decisions.
0: We deal with uh, my mother died two years ago, and we had her stuff all set up with a law firm that does specialize in farmland estates and farmers' legal, uh, particularly on the estate side. I can't say to the other stuff. So I know there's a value when you sit down with someone, every attorney in the world might say, Oh, sure, yeah, we can get you a will. Oh, yeah, we can do your estate plan. And you say, Wait a minute, I've got four kids. Now, one of them's got a divorce going on. Then also, there's this farm over here that You know, there's a lot of intricacies, and that's just on the estate side of it. And I can tell you that dealing with that law firm was very, very helpful because they knew ag issues from the estate side. Now you're talking about the need for someone to say, All right, let's talk about livestock production and and permitting through uh, the Department of Environmental Management, as you pointed out. There's so many things. And then also there's a different code I know on child labor laws. You can be a certain age and work on a farm and there's regulatories about that, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, my family is personally dealing with the uh, ag state issue. Um, uh, several of my grandparents passed away within quick succession of each other. And having a firm involved that understood uh, farming and especially when you get into a situation where not all of the heirs want to be actively engaged in farming and how do you make sure that everyone is adequately compensated how do you um, you know handle things like the farm management uh, cash rents managing of grain making sure that everyone understands the implication of all of their decisions uh, has been so essential and then um, you know everything from you um, most of my legal practice is involved with planning and zoning and so that's that's where my mind tends to go to know that you just have to make sure that everything is done procedurally correctly and then knowing the the early red flags and the warning signs so that you understand when you might have a potential issue that's brewing with potential opposition um, and what you can do to educate them about all the different regulations that farmers currently have to comply with and everything that's going on at the state level so that counties understand um, that in Indiana, because it's a home rule state, they can, they have the authority to say where these operations can locate, but they do not have the authority to say how they need to operate, um, and that can be a really uh, difficult thing to convey um, when. Once once things really get heated and you're in a room with, you know, 100 people in the opposition that are very emotional about the issue.
0: You're talking about, for instance, livestock zoning there. And then you said something. And obviously, we're both Indiana people, but I've got listeners from all over, including Canada, home rule state, you just described Indiana as a home rule state. So let's say the person in Kansas is listening right now. What's that mean?
1: That's a really good question. Thanks for pointing that out. Um, what that means is that in Indiana, it's the local government, the counties that have all of the authority to do something, unless it's an area where the state has come in and said, no, uh, we are going to regulate this area. And and a local uh, government can be preempted two ways. It can either be express. So for example, the Office of the Indiana State Chemist has a fertilizer uh rule that talks about how you have to use fertilizer whether it is synthetic or organic um, and it preempts all, all local governments from making their own fertilizer rules or preemption can also be implied which means that there's so much regulation in that field and it is so comprehensive that it is the implication that the state if they wanted to regulate that particular aspect, they would have, but there's so much regulation already that it's implied that they have, they have the opportunity to regulate something and they've chosen not to do so.
0: Okay, so uh, then there are states that are not home rule states and the issue there would be what?
1: So the issue there would be that the state has a that the state has the authority uh, for everything. And then they would parcel out authority back to the counties. It's the reverse. And um, those are called Dillon rule states
0: got it. About a month ago, Amy, on here, by the way, if you stepped out and got yourself a Coke, you might say, wait a minute, who is this guy talking to? Uh, you're listening to the Business of Agriculture podcast. Amy Cornell is my guest, smart gal, president of the Agribusiness Council of Indiana, an attorney specializing in agricultural law. She lobbies she also is helping get a, a AG law program put together a joint issue between Indiana and Purdue universities. She is uh, employed by Bose McKinney, and Evans in Indianapolis, Indiana. She is the uh, with Bose public affairs she 's answering our questions because you 've got an agricultural enterprise. you work in the business of agriculture. you have unique issues that you might need somebody to handle. Give me some other issues. I talked about the law for for estate planning and all that kind of thing. Where else do you end up needing uh, an agricultural lawyer?
1: Well, let's talk about the public policy arena for a minute. Um, we talked earlier about how so few people are involved in the direct production of agriculture, Sp- specifically in Indiana. Um, we are a part-time legislature. We have uh, citizens that are elected, and they serve either three to four months, depending on whether or not it's a budget year. And we also have very few active farmers that are serving in the Indiana General Assembly. So it is so important for people in agriculture and agribusiness to have good relationships with those decision makers to make sure that they understand all of the different potential implications that a particular piece of legislation or policy might have on a farm or an agribusiness.
0: Okay, so policy, we need ag attorneys like you that are well-versed in the law, fighting the good fight for us in our state capital, and every state that I've got a listener in right now, or even a province, is saying, boy, brother, I hear that, because we know that all of a sudden, some law is passed, and you're like, Jesus, did you think what this might end up doing to my agribusiness? So policy, how many ag lawyers do we have lobbying and policy in?
1: In Indiana, it is a a pretty small group that is almost entirely dedicated to agricultural law. Um, Depending on the issue, there are some other lobbyists that um, may jump in and out, but it's a pretty small club. We work together on on a lot of issues. Um, Because we are a minority issue, uh, minority. Uh, population, um, we often work together. And so we are known for collaboration here in Indiana, uh, for working out our issues behind the scenes so that we can present a united front to legislators when we're asking for changes or asking for them not to adopt a particular change. Particularly in policy, it is so important to have somebody not only that understands your business, that understands the law, but then also understands the actual legislative process, the people involved, those relationships, the personalities. Um, I can't tell you how difficult it is as a, as a lobbyist to sit in the state house and to see um, citizens come in with you know, no advice, they just, they came in to testify and it's so much less effective simply because they don't understand all of the unwritten rules about when to testify and when not to testify. Um, so it's so important to have a professional there to help you protect your business.
0: That's good. That's a real good input right there. Um, I'm thinking here speaking of policy and how we get screwed with sometimes because of our low numbers state of Indiana and Nebraska has this issue also because I, I work in Nebraska a few times per year the property taxation uh, say my sister or anybody that lives here in the community the people that live in town we got all kinds of tax property tax relief for residences why because every residence has a voter or two uh, land did not get tax relief. So our property taxes are really quite high. And as you and I point out, that acre of corn right out there doesn't need a school, nor a fire department and sure as hell not a library. So we don't have very good representation when it comes to that because I think our property taxes are almost prohibitively high on agricultural real estate. That's because we're outnumbered. And even if we send you there with Agribusiness Council of Indiana and the Farm Bureau saying, man, you're killing our farm owners we still got the, uh, the high taxes. Yes,
1: yeah, so actually, um, Indiana farmers received a huge um, victory within the last few years at the Indiana General Assembly. This happened during my time at Indiana Farm Bureau. That's where I worked immediately uh, prior to uh, Bose McKinney, and Evans. And we were able to demonstrate that the formula that we had for property taxes There was a lag time so it was based on the years where we had the best commodity prices um, and we were now facing the lowest commodity prices so it was sticky the property taxes weren't coming down quickly enough we were able to negotiate some relief um, and farmers started noticing that within the first couple of years also in Indiana, it's unique because we have constitutional tax caps. Uh, residences are capped at 1%, agricultural land 2%, and industry 3%. Now, that sounds great on the property tax front, but it creates some, maybe some unforeseen challenges that people didn't really think through in the fact that uh, when once you hit the caps, then local governments can be really starved for finding ways to generate additional revenue. And so there's always that give and take, uh, but we were able to clearly show that the property tax relief had to happen for Indiana farmers during that time, or uh, we were going to have many farmers that were going to be facing financial crisis because they were just simply too high. And so that was a great victory for Indiana farmers and Indiana agribusiness. That was a nice
0: first victory. We could use a couple of more because property tax are still uh, on my property, the one where I'm sitting right now, are still about about 70% higher than they were when I bought it 12 years ago. So anyway, interesting cases, examples you've heard of. Give me some stories. I'm out here listening to the Business of Agriculture, and I'm saying, man, I really enjoy this Amy Cornell, the ag lawyer. Give me some stories. Worst cases, things you've heard about, horror stories, fun stories. What do you got?
1: Um, Well, I got to have some really unique experiences when I worked at the Indiana State Department of Agriculture. Um, In order to help us understand the importance of some of the work that USDA and our other counterparts who actually had regulatory oversight, the State Department of Agriculture is unique. It's an agency that's built on advocacy, uh, soil conservation. The only part of that agency that has regulatory oversight is the Grain Buyers Warehouse, and licensing agency um, so I was shadowing the USDA and some customs officials and I actually got to go out to the airport to see how they screen packages to look for agricultural risks um, and they had some really crazy stories about opening packages that were supposed to contain jewelry and a tra- tarantula popped out right mm-hmm. that's now living at a zoo in Columbus Ohio All Right. Um, yeah. So that was, I was really glad it didn't pop out when I was there. Right, I'm not right, sure I'd right. still be alive. Um, just from the heart attack of this, of this scare. Uh, and then just working at the general assembly can be really interesting, right? Seeing how quickly the tide can turn when it comes to potential legislation, uh, watching deals, uh, get done. It's just such a an energized place that I really look forward to it when the legislators come back in town. Um, and I'm always one of the ones who are the most sad to see them go simply because there's so much excitement when they're here. I Go
0: ahead. From an ag law standpoint, have you seen something terrible happen because Uh, of someone not being prepared that you say, boy, I wish that we'd have been able to put an ag lawyer on that. You know, have we we seen anything? I mean, I just talked about the Smithfield Foods uh, issue a month ago on this podcast, where uh, courts in North Carolina, the very first trial went through and each neighbor of a of the hog farm was going to get $325,000. That was the reduced amount, it was millions before that. And so my point was, are we going to have to lawyer up and even then it doesn't matter because it's a jury trial. We've got issues.
1: What we do. do we we do, do, do have issues. I saw that a lot uh, on the local front, um, especially you know farmers that were getting ready to build livestock operations, or even in the case of wind farm developments, they just did not anticipate how much opposition they might face, um, and so. Several times they were calling us for assistance when it was already too late. The tide had really built, and it was, it was hard to uh, combat a lot of the misinformation that was there. When I yeah, was at uh, wind,
0: wind farms is a great example. If you say, well, this, there's going to be windmills. I might as well uh, put three of them up and take the lease payment. Uh, and then all of a sudden, boom, now I'm in a legal uh, arrangement with my neighbors.
1: Yes, yes. So wind farms uh, can be very contentious. Um, So when I was at Indiana Farm Bureau, I had the opportunity to serve on a team that's called Before You Build. And what we did is we uh, would get referrals either from farmers themselves or um, environmental consultants that were working with farmers. And we would try to go out and, and walk them through, these are all the different steps that you're going to take. These are things that you need to think through to make sure that this is really for you. And these are the general public relations tips that we advise you to do uh, to give yourself the best chance of getting a a building permit issued in your county.
0: Got it. That's probably a really smart thing right there. All right. You're a smart lady. You're an ag professional. You're an ag lawyer. One lesson, one, one thing you think anybody in the business of agriculture can benefit from.
1: I think I thought about something more broadly. I think it applies to any business that you're in. To be successful, you need to know your business. So know what your what your customers, what, what they need, and how you can be the most helpful. And then there is hardly anything that cannot be fixed with a sincere sorry or smile. So when you make a mistake, own it, be sincere in your apology, um, and be sincere in your desire to do better, and nine times out of 10, people are going to give you another chance.
0: I wanna wrap up um, with the topic that this whole episode is about, which of course is agricultural law because this is the business of agriculture that we talk about here. And again, I know that my listeners are in a myriad of different things, but they're all in one industry, whether they're in you know, equipment or fuel or seed or cotton or whatever this is, they're in one industry and that is agriculture. And I can tell you that most folks go about hiring their realtor, and their attorney based on who they know. All right, you know, I'm, I'm friends with old Bob. I, I know Bob here in town, and he he took care of some stuff for my mom and dad. That doesn't mean that's the most competent person to handle what you are handling, I know that having dealt with a law firm that specializes in ag stuff, there's a lot of advantages to that. And it's worth, even if there's a premium, which I'm not even sure that there is, it's worth it. So I think, Amy, what we need to make sure our listeners really get out of this is don't hire the attorney just because it's comfortable just because you drive by the attorney's office, hire the attorney that knows the business of agriculture is what I kind of got from this whole discussion.
1: Yes, that's true. I, I try to explain it to people in the context of doctors because they seem to understand that better. You can go to a general practitioner for a lot of different things. Uh, but when you have a um, a brain tumor, you really don't want your dermatologist. handling. Yeah, you, want,
0: you want a neurologist when you have a brain tumor. You want a dermatologist when you have skin cancer. So think about that, dear listener, when it comes to your business of agriculture. Is that what I'm hearing?
1: That is exactly what I'm saying. So when you have an ag issue, you really need an agricultural attorney. Even if you think it's something that's very basic, like an employment agreement, you may not realize all the different special exceptions that apply to your operation and a an attorney that knows agriculture can save you a lot of time and heartache.
0: And if you're sitting there listening to this podcast and you say, you know what, these people are right. I need to really re-up some of my stuff, some of my uh, leases, some of my employment agreements, some of my estate, whatever that thing should be. I think you should go find the American Agricultural Lawyers Association online. And I'm sure there's a listing. Is there not, Amy, of who these people could hire?
1: yes and um, if you reach out to them uh, they were more than happy to provide a list of who is a member in that area Um, also don't be afraid to ask for referrals an attorney should always be willing to give you uh, more than one name of somebody and that gives you a little bit of comparison so you can kind of check with both make sure it's a good fit for you personality wise um, and financially but there are plenty of professionals uh, that are out out there to provide good service for you.
0: Talking about the business of agriculture in particular about agricultural law it is a specialty we are a niche we are in a industry that almost nobody really even understands here in North America so I believe this was helpful information my guest was Amy Cornell with Bose McKinney and Evans in Indianapolis Indiana she also is with Bose Public Affairs and more importantly she's the president of the Agribusiness Council of Indiana Ag Law was the topic I hope you found this helpful Amy thank you for being my guest
1: Thank you so much.
0: All right. Until next time, follow me on Twitter. Like my Damian Mason fan page on Facebook. Keep up with me on LinkedIn. And again, catch me here for the next episode of the Business of Agriculture. So next time, thank you.